Welcome to this month's special programming series, Spotlight on Neurology and Psychiatry, on ReachMD XM157. Encountering an anxious patient can be anxiety-producing for many physicians. What tips can we learn from an expert in anxiety disorders? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Bodie Dunlop co-author of Contemporary Diagnosis and Management of Anxiety Disorders. Dr. Dunlop is the director of the Mood and Anxiety Disorders Program at the Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome to ReachMD. Oh, thanks. Happy to be here, Leslie. Dr. Dunlop, anxious patients often put their treating physicians on edge. Um, Can you please help us? How do we assess an anxious patient? I think there's a variety of approaches that can be used. They all take time, though. I mean, it's not easy because the patient is activated, and the first thing you have to do is to get them to calm down. So it really depends on how agitated or anxious they are. If they're really having a panic attack in your office and completely restless, you really have to distract them from their thoughts, sit them down, encourage them to slow down their breathing, not talk about what's making them anxious, actually talk about anything else so that they do not continue to dwell on that which they're concerned about, that you distract them away from that. So it sounds like the first thing we need to do as a provider is to come down ourselves and not be in a hurry. Yes, that's right. I mean, it's like a contagious anxiety as things seem out of control. And when people get anxious, they tend to think globalistically. And I think that's what can induce anxiety in the physician is it seems like everything's a problem. And being able to break it down into more manageable pieces helps reduce anxiety for both the physician and the patient. Where do you start building rapport with somebody who's freaking out on you? Yeah, if, I mean, if, this I say, if they're really freaking out, you want to really let them know, you know, this is something I've seen before. You're going to get through this. And perhaps the best thing is just to empathically listen with reflective comments. And by that, I mean listening and making statements showing that you understand their feeling state that it sounds terrifying, that this seems overwhelming. I can imagine you're frightened by all this. Making comments along those lines to let the patient know, here's someone who's listening and who's going to take your concerns seriously, and if you can calm down, we're going to be able to work this out. Mm -hmm. I think that's the biggest hurdle to get through is just to let the patient have a sense that you are there to listen and you're going to take the time to get through it. Now, assuming they're not having a panic attack but they're anxious, what are the most important questions we need to ask? The first thing is to identify when did all this start. I mean, you want to get the patient's understanding of their history, of what's behind this, and then what are the specific symptoms they're having. The psychiatrists are often prone to forget about the potential for medical illnesses to cause anxiety, so obviously those need to be addressed. But then more generally about the specific symptoms about what they're experiencing and any particular beliefs they have. I think if you can identify early on any what we call catastrophic beliefs or Really, you know, this is the worst that's ever going to happen. It's certain that the worst is going to happen. If you can get those ideas out of the patient and on the table, then you can educate them and address those concerns directly, which can be helpful. I think the most important thing to ask, and what I teach the residents, is that there's a triangle of mental illness, and it's anxiety disorders, depression, and substance abuse. And if you hear about one of those things, you've got to ask about the other two because they really do go together at very high rates of frequency, and and you won't get effective treatment if you just target one when there's another corner of that triangle that's active. Now, you mentioned that we need to think about medical problems that may be presenting with anxiety symptoms. Which are the top of your list? Well, I think if we think about anxiety as a state of potential threat or danger, you're talking about cardiovascular 
and pulmonary things. Those are the greatest threats to life. So situations where people have asthma, cardiac, supraventricular tachycardia, or other types of dysrhythmias, I think really have to be checked out. Uh, hyperthyroidism can sometimes cause things like this. Whether you want to classify substance abuse as a medical problem or not is debatable, but you know, withdrawal from a substance, particularly alcohol, can induce anxiety, even GHB. I've seen that where people present with anxiety after stopping doing that. And then perhaps any type of CNS problem, especially delirium in the elderly, people who get delirious or uh, encephalopathic can certainly present with anxiety as well. So any kind of tests that are particularly helpful in evaluating the anxious patient? Well, I think just doing tests helps reassure the patient in general so you can tell them there isn't a medical problem, but you're also looking to make sure there is a medical problem. Mm -hmm. So an EKG to look for cardiac problems and then a physical exam, particularly focusing on the lungs, is a useful thing. Getting a TSH to screen for thyroid disease, a urine drug screen, make sure there's no substances there. And then finally, just basic chemistry and CBC can be helpful at times. So much of what we do in terms of over-treatment in medicine, that high-tech evaluations and laboratory testing may really be unnecessary. Do you find that sometimes these anxious patients do get a workup that maybe is a little bit more or a lot more than they really need? Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt about it, especially for panic disorder patients and generalized anxiety disorder that blends into kind of somatoform worries. That's a huge medical expense, and I think there have been a number of pharmacoeconomic studies that have shown that, you know, if you treat the anxiety underlying, the medical costs are greatly reduced. There's no doubt about it, but unfortunately, the medical legal system we're in kind of drives physicians to want to cover all the bases because on the one time they get it wrong could be the time they get sued. So that is unfortunate, and I think it speaks to the need for some type of malpractice reform. And also, don't you find, too, it, it kind of depends what specialist they show up. Oh, sure, <laughs> yeah. Know? I mean, that's right. Well, you know, in psychotherapy, we say if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Right. So, so you know what you can evaluate, and you evaluate it. And so patients may go from doctor to doctor getting evaluated for different things. And very commonly, the psychiatrist is the last stop, unfortunately. Mm. For those who are just tuning in, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Bodie Dunlop. We are discussing how to evaluate an anxious patient. Now, you'd mentioned that triangle, which is wonderful, anxiety, depression, and substance abuse. And so many patients present with a combination. How do you figure out which is which and which to treat first? You know, if I were to try to do that as a psychiatrist, it usually takes me about an hour to an hour and a half to truly come Mm -hmm. up to a diagnostic formulation. And I'm not sure in the primary care office how necessary it is to really distinguish them when you're first starting the treatment. Because if you have a mixture of anxiety and depression and you're going to use a medication, then you want to use a serotonergic kind of agent, an SSRI or an SNRI. By that, I mean uh, Cymbalta or Effexor. You want to use one of those agents to target because they'll be effective for both the depression and anxiety symptoms typically. So it's after that initial treatment that you can become more specific in breaking out the disorders. But initially, I'm not sure how much it really matters. Makes sense. So treat them and and not worry too much about what's what. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, we have our disorders that we diagnose, but in actuality, the anxiety disorders overlap tremendously. It's actually far more common for people to have more than one anxiety disorder than to have just one. Mm. So if you have one, more than likely you're going to have two or three. And so breaking them apart, especially in the primary care office, I'm not so sure is relevant. You're trying to just get control of their symptoms initially 
After that, if they have more time, you can go into greater evaluation. But that initial treatment is to get the patient some relief and uh, see where you go, see what you can achieve. And luckily for us, the treatments are nonspecific. Yeah, that's exactly my point. So, you know, you're going to treat the depressive symptoms that are there. I think it is very important to identify the substance abuse, though, because that will worsen outcome no matter what. So we have to ask about that. Yeah, and, you know, let's talk about that. That's a tough one even for me, and I specialize in addiction medicine as well as psychiatry. So you have a patient who, let's say, is abusing alcohol. And they're anxious. And clearly the alcohol is contributing to the problem. They may be in withdrawal frequently, and that's causing anxiety-type symptoms. But this is a patient you certainly don't want to use benzodiazepines in. The antidepressants are going to take a while to work. They claim that they can't stop drinking because they're too anxious, and they get, right. yes, <laughs> they get some relief from the alcohol. And I just feel like, okay, now what do I do? It's a common and, and tricky situation to deal with. My approach has generally been, look, you need to stop drinking. I'm not going to force you to stop drinking, but you need to stop drinking. Practice used to be that we would not start an antidepressant until they stopped drinking. I believe the data now shows that, you know, you start treatment initially and you can have better outcomes with subsequent substance abuse treatment or concomitant substance abuse treatment. And because the uh, antidepressants are generally safe in people who are drinking. They may lose efficacy, certainly, and there is an increased risk if the person's a serious drinker of, of seizure, but generally they're safe, and the upside is that you can really enhance outcomes with alcohol abuse treatments. So I tend to go with the SSRI and really try to motivate them to enter into substance abuse treatment at the same time. Mm -hmm. Is there any antidepressant you would avoid in those patients? Well, I mean, so the only real difference there, I think, at high doses, well, bupropion has an increased risk of seizures. So once you get above 400 milligrams, the risk of seizures with bupropion is higher than other antidepressants. But all antidepressants do carry a risk of seizure of about 0.5%. So there isn't a great deal of difference. I would be concerned more about what do I think is going to get this person better rather than avoiding any particular antidepressant. Mm -hmm. And are all the antidepressants helpful for the anxiety symptoms? Well, no, that's right. So, as I was saying, we really want to focus on serotonergic agents, SSRIs or SNRIs, to treat depression when it's presenting with anxiety or just anxiety alone. Okay, so you wouldn't use the other ones then? No, I was thinking of depression with substance abuse. That's just the folks I could use bupropion in, but mm -hmm. I wouldn't use that for anxiety. Now, back to anxiety disorders in general, which of them do you think is the toughest to treat in most cases? Well, I think the hardest to treat is OCD, obsessive compulsive mm -hmm. disorder. It's a really strongly ingrained habit. People are reluctant to do the exposure and ritual prevention or response prevention psychotherapy that's most effective, and the antidepressants are usually only partially effective. And it's interesting, in our clinical trials, we only use a 25 to 30% reduction in scores. If we're able to do that, we say we've got a responder, mm -hmm. and there's no other psychiatric condition where we see so little improvement and say we're being successful. Mm -hmm. I think the other condition that's really tough to treat is post-traumatic stress disorder in veterans. The intensity and quantity of trauma that they face and then the other situations around their treatment back in the States makes that very difficult. I used to work at the VA, and I thought those were perhaps the very toughest anxiety cases to treat. Gosh, you know, that reminds me. Last night I saw a movie that's been out a long time, but somehow I missed it, called Flags of Our Fathers. 
I don't know if you've seen it. And it's, no, I've heard of it. But yeah, it's about Iwo Jima. So it's set a while back in World War II. But boy, I thought it did an incredible job. And it wasn't about PTSD. It was about a lot right. of other things. But it really gave an amazing window into what these veterans have dealt with, um, both in the battlefield and when they return home. So so that's my movie review for today. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just seeing something you know, someone was saying on the TV this morning. You know, he came back from Iraq and he's just not the same person. And, you know, these experiences do change change the brain. And uh, doing so, they do change the people. And severe trauma is very life-changing. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today, Bodie. Oh, I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot for asking me. We've been discussing evaluating and treating anxious patients with Emory psychiatrist, Dr. Bodie Dunlop. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments, so please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening. Listen all month as ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals, features a special series, Spotlight on Neurology and Psychiatry.